invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. It's good to see everyone out this evening, just as this morning, to be able to worship God and to study from His Word. Pray that the next few moments will be beneficial or edifying to you in some way, and especially with the topic tonight, I, I do think that this is an interesting um, discussion, at least an interesting thought, and it's somewhat been motivated by really a lot of things that I, I feel like I've been hearing in the media outlets lately. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. The media outlets lately. Uh, not only that, but also just, you know, debates, you know, whenever the election year comes, there's all kinds of interesting things that are tossed around, slogans and so forth, and, and just really all kinds of things from social media to, to just the mainstream media outlets to the politics of our day to really just pundits of what, I, what would they would say would be truth. And as you think about truth, when you look at Proverbs chapter 23 in verse 23, it says, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. When you think about that notion of buying truth, I, I, well, really that's the question I want to ask. Can you buy truth in the first place? What does that mean? Because frankly, what you hear a lot of times, I think today, when you talk about truth, what it means for a lot of people is, is to a degree that you kind of have ownership of your own truth while other people or other groups have ownership of, of their own group. And so therefore they get to craft it for themselves or craft it to their own liking. And the way that you hear this a lot of times is, well, this is my truth. That's your truth. You don't get to say that about, about you know, how I feel because that's my truth. And really what <laughs> happens is they're kind of trying to use it as a defense. It's, it's a terrible, pitiful argument. Uh, a terrible, pitiful defense. But frankly, that's what a lot of people say and, and really kind of profess today. And so as we think about Proverbs 23, 23, obviously God wants us to understand something. And it's not that you get to buy truth so, truth so that way you get to craft it for yourself. But before we start talking about what it means to buy truth and sell it, I just want to first kind of start by defining that. In John 18, verse 38, you have that very famous part of, of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion where he's speaking with Pilate, a man who had the power and authority to, to free him, you know, on a purely, you know, earthly level or the earthly plane. And, and as he's speaking with Jesus, Jesus isn't giving him the answers he'd like and in some cases isn't giving him any answer at all. And, and as, as they're speaking to one another, this topic of truth is brought up. And the question Pilate asks is, well, what is truth? And this is another thing that really bothers me, is that a lot of times when people are asked very pointed questions about the Bible, especially, it, you know, when you search out, well, what's the truth of the matter? What's the reality? What are the facts? A lot of times what people say is, well, what is truth anyway? And so I want to talk about that for a few moments. I want to start with what it's not. And as we kind of go through some of these definitions of these words that, we're, that you're about to see on the screen, this is all from the Google Dictionary. But what, from the very beginning, what truth is not is subjective. Truth is not subjective. And what this means is it is based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. And so when you, when you talk about being subjective, it's someone who doesn't have the ability to look outside of their own feelings. They're not willing to look at the facts. Everything, everything is shaped by how I feel at the moment. And so really a good translation of this would be, as we were talking about a moment ago, I decide what my truth is, you decide what your truth is. 
that's completely subjective. It's all on a very personal level and, and really kind of uh, to a degree, um, it's a bit of a idolatry situation because now I, I'm the one who decides what truth is. But ultimately, that's, that's what I mean by subjective. Truth is not, you know, kept within the boundaries that we create. We can try to put boundaries there, but it means nothing. We have no power or authority to put them there. In fact, there's only one who does, which we'll get to in just a moment. But truth is not subjective. It's not influenced by the personal uh, opinions or the personal judgments or the personal feelings of someone. But not only that, truth is not pluralistic. One thing that you hear from time to time from uh, whole debates are had on this about you know pluralism and is, is truth pluralistic in this way. The definition of this from Google, it says, a condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority, and, and so on coexist. And so just to say that it, without all the you know, jumbled up words, it's essentially the notion that you have two different sources of authority that can coexist. And, and so to a degree, you, you can kind of understand that. Two things can be true at once. Like I can say, I, I mean, you could say, I hate pizza, but that doesn't mean that you have to hate the person who makes pizza. You know, and so, you know, two things can be true at once. That's a bad example because <laughs> who hates pizza? But, I mean, you see how the, those things don't necessarily contradict each other. But when it, this is brought to the topic of truth, it kind of gets a little bit more pointed and really just, it, it really just becomes absurd because what people end up saying is that there can be many truths at once even if they contradict. And so I love the word that they use for coexist. You know, every, all these things can coexist. Well, no, really they can't. I mean, yes, there are some truths that can, that can uh, you know, stand and, and, uh, together, but that's only when they're not directly opposite. Of one another. It's, it's when they don't contradict each other. And if there is a contradiction, what that suggests is that's not true. Uh, and we have to actually find the facts of the matter. And so it's not subjective. Truth is not pluralistic. It's not relative, finally. And there are plenty of other things that we could mention when it comes to what it is not. But I think this kind of hits the broad arguments that people make. From you know my truth and your truth to all things can be true at once. That's just that's such a stupid argument, and it's a bad defense. But especially when you come to the fact that truth is relative, and what I mean by that is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context. And here's the key: and are not absolute. Now that's interesting. Because what pundits of this idea would say, you know, of, of all, all, you know, everything is relative, they'd essentially be saying there is no truth. One of, and one of the best things, and I'm kind of stepping on my toes here uh, when we get to what truth is, but one of the best things you can say to that when someone says, well, nothing is true, there is no truth, the best answer and response is, is that true? That's what you call a self-defeated argument. Uh, because clearly uh, it's not been fully thought through. And so if they concede to that, well, they've lost. And if they try to backtrack, well, again, they've lost. And so it's a self-defeated argument. Now, all of these things we have to understand about what truth is not because that helps us understand even further what truth actually is. And so to the opposite degree, truth is not subjective but objective. Subjective, it's influenced by feelings, tastes, and opinions, whereas when it's objective, this is just the reality, plain and simple. And it is completely unaffected at all by these kinds of things. Uh, there's, a, there's a political podcaster that I, that I, 
I, I like something that he says a lot when he talks about facts and, and you know, people's feelings. And he, what he often says is facts don't care about your feelings. And, and that's true. If, if, I mean, if you told somebody gravity exists and they say, that hurts my feelings, I want to be able to jump off this building. And what would you, yeah, well, facts don't care about your feelings. And honestly, it's going to hurt a lot more if you decide that your feelings are, are worth trump, trying to trump the facts. And so truth is objective. It, you know, if, if I don't want to pay my taxes, I, it, it hurts my feelings. And I'm, this is not just some random example. It hurts my feelings that I have to pay taxes in April every single year. And when you get to the nitty gritty, it, it gets even worse, but we won't get into all those details. But if I don't want to pay my taxes because it truly does, to my bitter core, offend me, does that mean that I don't have to? No, we still got to pay the taxes. Because the objective reality is, I am bound by law to pay those taxes. And in fact, Scripture even says, you know, give your taxes to Caesar. And so frankly, I have to bend to, to those boundaries. I have to bend to that truth. Uh, on a more serious note, but, but frankly, my, my grandmother, she's, she's had to deal with uh, diseases all her life. And, and especially in her older age, she, she got diabetes. And that's something that we would talk about from time to time. And all the things that she has to do, it's incredible. The day has to be meticulously planned out. And, and her meals have to be even more so. And she has to be very wary of, of her sugar numbers and all of these things. And it gets very tiresome and laborsome. And as you think about that, you know, I, I mean, it hurts me to see her have to go through all these things. And I know it hurts her to have to go through all of those things as well. But objectively, could she cure herself suddenly because she just doesn't want to have to do all these things anymore? Could she just say, my feelings, I really would rather not have to take these shots, these medicines. I really would rather not have to plan every single meal in this way. And so I think that the world should just go ahead and, and go along with that truth because that's my truth. It just doesn't work. If she stops taking her medicine, she's going to be hurt, seriously. And so that, that's the objective truth, that this is the reality. No matter how you feel, no matter what you desire, no matter what you want, this is the reality. These are the facts. Not only that, but when you think about what we talked about with truth not being pluralistic, what that means is truth is exclusive. There can't be more than one truth. So... If, if you have two people, person A says 2 plus 2 is 4, and then person B says 2 plus 2 is 3, can we accept both answers? And, and I mean, obvious, the obvious answer is no. It's that simple. But when you start getting into even more, uh, uh, more in-depth in, in some studies, like, uh, you know, if you're in an elementary school, if you get that question wrong, it doesn't do much damage. But I remember uh, my, one of my brother-in-law's, he was uh, in engineering school, and one of his teachers was going through this really intricate problem, and he was basically making the point that you need to show your work. And they're all just like, why? Here's why. Because as he goes through all of these things, he gets to the end, and he has the, the, uh, he, he has the right answer. And so you'd think, well, that should deserve the points. But he starts making the application of, yes, but if you, you see earlier, you kind of lucked onto the right solution. But earlier, there's a pretty decent mistake in the middle. And if you show your work, I get to see that. It doesn't seem very catastrophic on the whiteboard, but it does get pretty catastrophic if you're a rocket scientist. It does get pretty catastrophic if you are, you know, working in the upper branches of the military. It does get pretty catastrophic if you're trying to build bridges. Because one little mistake, it can cost many lives. And so, you know, frankly, 
on the whiteboard, yes, 2 plus 2 equals 3. That's not that big of a deal. That's just a point off. But in reality, that's not right. And if we try to act like that's right for whatever reason, for feelings or otherwise, it can cause immense damage in the long run, in the future. And even if we're just trying to be nice and say, well, you know, this person deserves the points as much as this person. That never, ever works in the real world, in the world of business. Like, back to taxes. If we can accept both of these answers, 2 plus 2 is 4 and 2 plus 2 is 3, do I get to go to the IRS and say that you need to accept this person's math who's saying that I get to pay you less? Like, they, they would laugh at you. They would laugh in your face and probably somehow find a way to find you even more. That, that doesn't work. No one is willing to take this kind of idea of, of truth being, you know, truth being pluralistic and there could be many truths at the same time. No one takes this into the serious realm of, of, of our ethics and of our business. And it's because, I think maybe for one reason, because money doesn't, money often doesn't lie. But, but, but this, is the, this is the facts. Truth is exclusive. It excludes all other things uh, other, than, than, uh, other than the facts. And so truth is objective. It's exclusive. And finally, it's not, rel- it's not relative, but rather it is absolute. Truth not only exists, but it transcends culture and language and context. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what the current trend is. It is always there. It is always absolute. And just remember what we said earlier. When someone tries to say there is no truth, you just ask, is that true? And, and, and it just doesn't work. And so the reason that we go through this is because that while we understand that truth not only exists, it's kind of like the law of physics or the laws of physics. You don't get to rule over them. They rule over you. You have no ability to make them bend for you. You really have to act within those boundaries, within those laws that are given to us. And when you look at what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you don't get to say, that hurts my feelings. I'd like to take a different path but still get the same reward. It's objective. You don't get to come to the Bible. We've already made the case when it comes to just real world problems. But when you come to the Bible, nothing changes. In fact, it's even more important. Because when you come to Jesus and you try to say, well, I think that all roads lead to Jesus. Jesus himself says, that's not true. Jesus himself says, that will lead you to hell. That's the narrow gate, or that's the wide gate that leads to damnation and destruction. When someone comes and starts talking about truth, they don't get to say, well, there really is no truth. Jesus says everything that we just discussed about this. He is the only truth. Everything outside of him and his world is false. Everything outside of his word is a lie. He is the only one who determines truth, not you or me, and not anybody else. And it doesn't matter what their position is how official they are. He is the only one that defines what truth is. He is the only one that gets to set those boundaries. Now, we can either buy or accept that truth, which leads to benefit, which leads to growth, which which leads to our sustainment, or we can sell it, rejecting the truth, which will ultimately lead to further harm to ourselves and damnation. And so I want to talk about that for the next few moments, getting back to Proverbs 23 and verse 23, where he says, you buy truth and do not sell it. 
What I think this is really focusing on when God says that we need to buy truth is it, this doesn't mean you buy truth to craft it or spend it for yourself. It means it, it really does come at a cost. From a fundamental level, truth does cost something. In John chapter 8 and verse 32, as Jesus is speaking uh, to, to some Jews that don't want to hear what he has to say and they don't like what the objective reality is John chapter 8 and verse 32 at the end of this uh, towards the end of this discourse what he says is you will know the truth and the truth will make you free and as he's talking about continuing in his word isn't that interesting that you have this very strong connection between his word and that truth that will set you free regardless this truth that frees us is procured itself by a cost how does Jesus's word how does Jesus save us through a sacrifice in other words through a cost of him of his own self through a very costly love that he that he shows us through the cross and the resurrection from the dead now that i think that is is very clear just when you look at the story of jesus and you see what he does for us that much is clear but how is truth costly when it comes to us in our everyday lives. How is truth costly and what is the importance of buying it? What does it mean if it's going to cost us something? Well, by definition, it comes at the cost of falsehood from the very beginning. If you are pursuing truth and you want to pick that up, that means everything outside of that has to be put down. Now here is where the rubber starts meeting the road because when you start thinking about the presuppositions that people sometimes have, when you start having a Bible study with somebody, there's a lot of, of presumption that comes into that. And we have to be ready for those kind of presuppositions. We have to be ready for the beliefs that may have already been built up and maybe strengthened in people before those studies start. But this is what's going to happen. People have ideas about what religion should look like. They have ideas about what God looks like. And very often what we have to do is show them the truth and say, you, you're looking at a created God, not the creator that we find in the Bible. And that can, that can you know, take many shapes and forms. And for one instance, you may have somebody who has just crafted their own Jesus, who is only, only speaks about love, never speaks about hell. And we're going to have to go through the Gospels and say, that, that's, that's a false presumption. Because when you look at Jesus, in fact, he preaches more about hell than any other preacher in the New Testament. And so that presupposition, that falsehood is automatically laid down when you come to the truth, if you're really seeking the truth. But not only that, maybe it's, it's while it changes the way you think and even how you think, maybe it's, it's uh, uh, a, just a source of authority. Instead of someone coming to the Bible and saying, well, I like what this says, but I also like what some other religions have to say, and this is what a lot of intellectuals do today, uh, in a lot of debates and, and, and what you see in a lot of interviews on, on mainstream media, a lot of people kind of just, they, there are some guys that I really like listening to, but even though I think that they're wise and I think that they do have, I do think they're really smart, they fail when it comes to this point exactly. Because they like to try and combine all of these teachings that they have from, you know, philosophers like Plato and, 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 and then you come to Jesus. And what they're doing is kind of, putting these things together, making it sound like Jesus's teaching is, is just like Aesop's fables. And you don't get to do that because Jesus himself says, this is the way, this is the only wisdom. And so all other authorities, all other uh, sources of authority that we may have built up in our lives and brought with us, they have to be put down. Maybe that's just myself. My authority, gone. 
Now I look at the authority of God. It may be the authority of loved ones. I've got to put that away too. Truth can cost us many things, and we'll talk more about that. But even though truth does come at a cost, it's a cost that I think is worth it. Over in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 44, beginning. <clears throat> Matthew 13, in verse 44, two very short parables that Jesus goes through, but I think it really makes the point here. In the first, in verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In verse 45, uh, uh, another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In each case, as he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, uh, when, when you're speaking about the pillar and support of the truth, when he's speaking about what, what it's like, he's he's basically making the case that, yes, this does cost something, but the cost is more than worth it. In fact, in, in, the, in the first parable, he says, for joy over it. It doesn't just cost him something, it costs him everything. Now, when you talk about what the gospel has to do in people's lives, I think this is one of the main points we have to make over and over again, and that we have to stress very, very much. Because when you look at you know, different interactions with Jesus throughout the New Testament. And when Jesus invites people to follow after him, or when people say they're going to follow after him, and he always is reminding them about, make sure you think about the cost here. Don't just be giving me empty promises. Don't just be giving me empty words. Because this is going to cost you something, to be my disciple. Even Peter brings this fact up. We've left all. And, and Jesus gives him a promise that, that I think is very encouraging. But with all that being said, it does cost something. And, and, and frankly, when it comes to the gospel, sometimes I think we, we look at this and say, well, there's no way people are going to want to accept that. But frequently, we accept the cost of things all the time. Or, you know, for things that we think ultimately are worth it. There's a lot of ways that we do that. But, you know, you think about procedures that we may have to go through that we're not very excited for. But why do we do it? Because we know that it's for our benefit. We know that it is ultimately supposed to help us, that it's supposed to prolong life. And so it is going to cost us something, but we're doing it because we think it's worth it. And I think more often than not, we get discouraged because maybe, we are, maybe we're not as confident that the reward will be worth it. Over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, again, a familiar passage from Paul here. But as he speaks about the sufferings of this life, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so he's not saying that, that the suffering is not going to come. And he's not saying that there isn't going to be any cost if you are Christ's disciples. We've already made that case. But what God promises us is that any and every cost will be worth it. But that does not mean that it's going to be painless. And that doesn't even mean it's going to be easy. It just means it's going to be worth it. And we have to understand that there is a distinction there. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, as it speaks about this word, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, 
It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So I know the word truth is never used, but that is what we're talking about, the word of God and its power and its activity in our lives and its effect on us. And as, it, as you go through that very exposing light of God's word, and you could even look at John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21 to see even more how it does expose us. When you just think about the, the, the notion of being exposed, I mean, that often hurts. That truth often hurts. Uh, especially when you look at John chapter 3, then the, the thought is that it's people that are currently in the darkness. And they're shunning the light. Why? Because they don't want to be exposed. Because these are deeds of darkness. These are shameful deeds. These are wicked deeds. And so this is what the word does. Now, with all that being said, would we look at that and say, well, I'd, I don't think that I would want to come into contact with that because there doesn't seem to be any benefit. There is a benefit. You still have to go through the shame. You still have to go through the exposure. But what God says, what Jesus says is, once you're exposed, you can have that washed away. And we need to remember that all the more because truth is hard to take. Sometimes it's just plain inconvenient. When we are exposed by the light of God's word, the truth of God's word, what that means is the alcoholic now has to pour their alcohol down the drain. Every bottle. When, when someone is exposed by the truth of God's word, maybe the, the pornography addict, they are going to have to put accountability and visibility on, on their devices. They're going to have to put accountability on their phone. They're going to have to put accountability on their computers. They may have to put rules on themselves that where basically they can't be alone anymore. That has happened. And, and, and for good reasons. Now, that is very costly. It costs time. It costs a lot of effort and planning. It costs even a lot of times money. There are some good softwares out there when it comes to, you know, having accountability on your phone and on your devices, especially for pornography, but those aren't free. Now, do you think, do you think that if a man had a real issue with pornography and, and him and his wife had been dealing with this for a number of years and he looks at, you know, the cost of this, you know, just the financial cost of putting accountability on all of his devices, do you think that it would be, you know, a, a good enough excuse for the wife to say, this is going to cost us so much money. And frankly, this is just going to be such a hassle. Do, do we really want to go through with this? What do you think the wife's going to say? What are you? Yes. Are you kidding me? Why? Because yes, it costs something, but it's worth it, isn't it? And, and, and sometimes it's more than just inconvenient. Sometimes it just turns your world plain upside down. And this is another thing that we have to understand, especially in our evangelistic studies with people. When we study with someone who may struggle with homosexuality, or may not just struggle, but someone who never has been exposed to God's word, has given their life over completely to this, you know, LGBTQ whatever agenda, and that is their meaning of life for them. We're not just saying, you, you just got to make a few adjustments here. We're not just telling that person, you know, Jesus, I, I think what Jesus would want you to do is maybe walk away from just this, this situation over here and maybe just make a few. It's not a few adjustments. What we have to tell them is God says you have to turn your whole life around. Your whole life has to be put away. 
Your whole life is the falsehood that will be the cost if you want to take hold of truth. And I'll tell you something, that is hard to hear for someone who's struggling with that. Not only that, but maybe it's, and I've, I've even heard of these situations, I'm, I'm not kidding, in real life this has happened, where you have someone, a couple who's unscripturally married, and maybe they're just new to the faith, and they have been doing really well. And I mean, they've been encouragements to the church, and all of a sudden they're reading through some passages throughout the New Testament, and they're reading about, studying about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and what they realize is they don't have a right to be married. And in this situation, they had kids. Now, what has to happen there? Well, they've been an encouragement in the church, and they've been really helpful to have. I think we just maybe shouldn't say anything, so that way we might be able to keep them a little bit longer. That's not the answer. That's not truth. Or, or maybe, maybe they even realize that, but I'm just not willing. I'm not willing to let these things go. What God says is, what the truth is, is that you have to. And you even see examples of that in, in the Bible. Look in the Old Testament in Nehemiah when the people had given them, taken foreign wives. They had children too. But what did they do? They separated from that sinful association. And so it doesn't matter what the consequences are going to be. Because frankly, when you start comparing and contrasting whatever consequences will come <laughs> against the ultimate consequence of just rejecting truth altogether... What that means is you've rejected God. That's a consequence we cannot bear. And so, yes, there are going to be consequences. Yes, it's going to be hurtful. And we have got to, we have got to be able to address those things. And so when you look at even those kinds of really weighty matters, someone, again, might think, well, we, we just talked a moment ago about how Jesus says that the cost is going to be worth it. How could this be worth it? Because now you're in a relationship with God. And if we think that's simply not enough, then we need to do more study. If we think that that is not enough, I don't know if you have the faith that saves. I'm very doubtful. And, and let me just ask you this. It, think about it in just everyday terms. If you had someone who, you had a cancer survivor. My, my mother-in-law is a cancer survivor. And she had to go through a lot of humiliating things and a lot of very painful things in her treatments as she was trying to get rid and, and try to, you know, get, get cured of her ailments with the cancer. Do you think that if you asked her about the treatments and you said, do you, was the treatments worth it? What do you think she's going to say? The treatments, maybe humiliating and painful as they were, you mean the treatments that ultimately led to the fact that I get to watch every single one of my kids get married? You mean the treatments that led to me being able to hold my grandchild? You ask a question like that, they're going to look at you in the face and say, how could you be so stupid? Is it worth it? Of course it's worth it. If you ask a mom who, who goes into a burning building to save her baby and she gets scorched all up and down her body, and you ask her, oh, that was so heroic, but was it really worth all of that? What is she going to tell you? Get away from me, you buffoon. <laughs> because obviously it's worth it. Yes, it's going to be hurtful. Yes, it's going to be hard. But the benefit, the reward, far outweighs, as we just read in Romans chapter 8, far outweighs all those consequences. And so that's what it means to buy truth, I think, that it will come at a cost, but it is a cost that is going to be worth it. And we have to be willing to make the proper applications and do what God says if we want to really, really have truth in our lives. But now we come to the final point, which is do not sell it. That's, that's 
the other side of this. God says, buy truth, but do not sell it. And what I think this is really indicating is it's worth every cost that you can give to attain it, and it is not worth any cost to get rid of it. <laughs> there is not one thing in this world that is worth letting go of it. But I tell you, I think there's a lot of ways that we can sell truth today. Many profess to be lovers of God. Many profess to be lovers of truth. But then we end up selling it for a few different things. Maybe for starters, something like worldly gain. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 34 beginning. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so, worldly gain. That's one main way that we sell truth and, and in the long run sell our souls. Now, what does that look like? Well, you have Christians that, that are so focused on work, so focused on overtime. You have Christians that are so focused on maybe uh, getting to a Wednesday night game or maybe going all weekend to a tournament because that, the, sport, the sport that they're in or maybe just the sport that they spectate is worth so much to them. And they do that over being at worship. I tell you, that's someone who's selling truth. It, but it's just one time. Honestly, it's very often, most of the time, it's not just one time. But even just once, you're still selling truth. And you got to do some work to, to get that back. Or the person who decides that school, that education is more important. They put that over their Bible study. They put that over Bible class. That's someone who's selling truth. Or, and, and there's so many different things that we can think of just from a, from a purely worldly level. Of the, all the kind of gain, the sordid gain that we can try to get our hands on. But what Jesus says is, none of that is worth your soul. And yet so many people read through this verse not realizing that what they're doing is reading what Jesus says. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But for an education. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But for a promotion. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? But for a million dollars. None of that works. And so sometimes this is a way that we sell truth. But not only that, when it comes to the religious world, sometimes it's compromise. Very simply, just compromise with sin. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a situation where the church at Corinth had tolerated and accepted a brother, someone who was a Christian, and in, in um, a sexual sin, but it was... Sin regardless. And as they were tolerating that and accepting that, Paul comes at them and says, this is, this is wrong. You shouldn't be boasting about this. You should be mourning this and you need to remove him from your midst. But look at what it says in verse 6 beginning. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I didn't just pick this passage because it has the word truth in it, although that is kind of a, bet, uh, a bonus, but it's not sincerity in truth if we're accepting sin instead of rebuking it. 
We can never say that we are worshiping and we can never say that we are truly walking forward in sincerity and truth when we are overlooking sin, overlooking compromise. This is another big one that I think happens from time to time with Christians, how we sell truth. We would say truth. We would never sell that at any cost. And yet this is what happens all across the nation, all across the world. Compromise. But not only that, fellowship with the ungodly. In James chapter 4, in verse 4, James I think makes it very clear. In verse 4 of James chapter 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which is made to dwell in us. Which he has made to dwell in us, excuse me. And I kind of like the fact in verse 4 how he starts by saying, You adulteresses, and then he goes on to some of the, the you know, what, what are they struggling with? They really are adulteresses. Why? Because they have made themselves friends and chummy with the world. And, and so it doesn't have to be, you know, the greatest apostasy for us to be guilty of this sin in James chapter 4 and verses 4 through 5. Fellowship with the ungodly. You know, when you think about the word fellowship, is that only hearty and loud approval? Is that what fellowship is? Or can it be something that's, that's quiet and just simply unchallenging? Could it just be presence? Could it just be being present with something that we know is wrong? Fellowship doesn't have to be something where we say, amen. It can be that, certainly. But it can also be a lot more subtle than that, and a lot more quiet. I think about in Galatians chapter 2 when you have Peter, his hypocrisy and how infectious that was. Because Peter, being an apostle, you can kind of think the other people that were with him, well, he's an apostle. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe we should do something. You know, it's not an excuse. But you can kind of almost think from, from someone like Barnabas' standpoint, Peter's an apostle. What more should I, I, I should really follow along with this. But Barnabas, I don't think, was you know, yelling out amen every time this happened. Barnabas, I don't think, was preaching that this is what we need to do. He was a son of encouragement. I think he was encouraging both Jews and Greeks. But Barnabas quietly fellowshipped that hypocrisy. Why? Not because he shouted amen, but simply because he was present for it. That can be fellowship. Are we fellowshipping sin by simply dwelling in it? I tell you, the Bible is very clear about dwelling in sin, about walking in the pathway of sinners. It's not an inconsequential thing. And so are we fellowshipping sin by dwelling with it and being in the midst of it? Maybe not acting it out fully, but just being uh, in the midst of it. Well, one other thing, that, and there's so many other things that we could talk about, but one thing that I think hits churches abroad when it comes to selling truth is this notion of peace and unity. Peace and unity is something that should be the default in the church. This is what Jesus expects. But I will just say, a lot of times what people mean when they talk about peace and unity, it's not, they, they don't mean that. What they mean by peace is a lack of conflict. What they mean by unity is a lack of, of disputes. And so what I, I, I liked how one writer put this as I was studying for this lesson, and I think many have this mindset, but as he talked about this verse, he said, some people, a lot of people, tend to view truth as truth if possible. 
but peace at any cost. Instead of truth at any cost. But I tell you, I think many Christians think that way. A lack of, of, uh, a lack of conflict at any cost. Unity and peace can only be had through the sound doctrine of Christ. That's the only way. And just because maybe there's a lack of conflict, that does not necessarily mean that there's peace and unity. It can just mean that people are really good about not talking. Or it could just mean that people really stink at talking. And so in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, when you think about, about peace, what, is, what does Jesus say there? Does he say, I came to bring peace? No, he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that sword may cause division. It's, and, it's not, and, and it's not, Jesus is not trying to say that I want there to be division, but he's saying that if there must be, there must be. And my people, my disciples need to be willing to follow me in that. Even if that means losing people like my closest loved ones. Why? Because it's truth at any cost. And not one person, relationship not one hobby, not one worldly gain is worth selling that truth. And so, thinking about that verse in Proverbs 23, have we bought truth? Have we become a Christian, accepted the, accepted the conditions that Christ has given us to have salvation, to be his disciple, but maybe we have sold it along the way? Buy it back. And, and get rid of the things that caused us to sell in the first place. But if you are not a Christian, what buying that means, yes, it will come at a cost. Yes, you have to abandon everything. I mean, seriously. But what Jesus says over and over again, and what God makes clear through promises and through story after story after story of assurances, is that that cost will be worth it. Do you want that home in heaven with him? It may cost you everything on earth, but what a cost it would really be to gain everything on earth, but never see him in, the etern in eternity because we walked our way to hell or we bought our way to hell. Are you willing to buy truth? Are you willing to obey Jesus and everything he says to be faithful in? Are you willing to hear everything he has for you? Repent of all the things that he says to do away with. Make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life and become a Christian. You can have salvation this very night. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.